Today's program is part of a special series brought to you by St. Agnes Medical Center and Every Neighborhood Partnership with funding provided by ACES Aware. Together, we are working to raise awareness about the effects of adverse childhood experiences in hopes of building a healthier community and a brighter future for our children. Dr. B explains the importance of acknowledging our stressors of the past in order to thrive in the present. Plus, she shares practical tips for coping through challenging times and building greater resiliency so you and your family can enjoy healthier and more fulfilling life. Hi, you're listening to Delusional Optimism with Dr. B, where we explore human resiliency and learn how people thrive even after adversity. We break down the complexities of the human brain so concepts are simple and relatable. It's fun and empowering to understand how your earliest experiences influence your relationships today. What makes you tick? Dr. B is a speaker, trainer, and consultant who understands emotions and human development from the inside out. Let's dive into today's episode. Here's Dr. B. Welcome to Delusional Optimism. I'm your co-host, Seth Creekmore. In this first of two episodes, we have Atlanta-based functional neurologist, Jerome Lubba, who's a brilliant human that brings practical knowledge uh, to his patients. Uh, We had a chance to practice our resilience during this episode, as tech wasn't really behaving as we expected. The content was so good, however, we decided to just go with it. So uh, we're sure you're going to enjoy it. If you're interested in furthering this conversation, feel free to reach out to Dr. B at contacts at drbconnections.com. Or if you'd like to know more about her, you can visit her website, drbconnections.com. Enjoy the show. Jerome, what is it that you actually do? What do you do with your life? I do with my life. Uh, so I tell people professionally, I'm a personal trainer for the brain. So I specialize in complex unresolved cases. Everybody who comes to me has been to an average of 14 to 21 specialists and spent over $100,000. And it may, they may not have an accurate diagnosis at that point. Technically, what I do is what's called functional neurology. I'm the only doctor in Atlanta and there are 13 in the state of Georgia that are board certified in functional neurology. It means that my expertise is in neurological disorders or brain difficulty or brain injury and working with that without drugs or surgery. So I bridge the gap between traditional healthcare and alternative healthcare. I have an alternative healthcare degree and then I'm a board cert- I'm a, I have my doctorate is in chiropractic. But then the, the traditional model is I'm board certified in physical therapy, functional neurology, and also board eligible, which means I've taken all the tests. I just haven't sat for the exam yet <laughs> because I have three kids that are five and under and I'm trying to stay above ground. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but I'm board eligible in movement disorders, vestibular rehabilitation, neurochemistry, traumatic brain injury, concussion, and something else. But my, I don't even have the name of my clinic on the door of where I work because I just don't care that much. Mm. <laughs> Um, I just became, I was a patient who went to 21 specialists over nine years myself. And when I couldn't find a good doctor, I decided to become one. So what I do is basically serve patients in the way that I didn't feel served. Mm. But outside of doing that, helping people figure out how to fix their brains without drugs or surgery, but bridging the gap between traditional and alternative. I have my 16 year anniversary with my wife, Deborah, next month. I have three kids that are five and under and a 28 year old who is my wife's younger brother that we raised. 
Uh, so my introduction to ACES was as an immigrant kid moving to the States with a special forces dad who was pretty intense. Uh, I went to 11 different schools before I graduated high school in the States, which is pretty interesting when you've got an Afrikaans accent. But I got introduced to ACES as a parent because we took in an emotionally distraught, traumatized 12-year-old when my wife was 19 and I was 21. So our first introduction to parenthood was when one of the, the only one of the three people in the house was not a teenager. <laughs> so we had two teenagers and one of them was my spouse. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's just been a, it's been that kind of space, but I would say just from a professional standpoint, about 60% of my, my practice is pediatric. I, I primarily lean into pediatric brain injury and nonverbal autism. And then uh, working through the adverse experiences that parents have had that influence their parenting. So half of what I do is treating kids and half of what I do is helping parents learn how to be parents while I'm doing all of those things myself. Yes. Mm. That's all you so. do? I know, yeah. <laughs> well, that, that, that's, 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 that's two of the seven or eight categories. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. You know, well, the funny thing is, you guys know, if you, start, if you start sharing, this is why I tell people I work in healthcare. Because as soon as I start talking, all of the things that I did was because I didn't want to be stuck any longer as a patient and I don't want my patients to be stuck. Mm-hmm. But as soon as I start sharing about it, it sounds so darn pretentious, right? Yeah. So I, I normally don't tell everybody what I do because I do it for my own sake, not for anybody else's, sure. right? Sure. Um, but yeah, it, it, can, it can certainly start to get to sound a little bit pretentious when you keep going through the CV, you know? <laughs> it is highly impressive, though. I am just super fascinated and so excited <laughs> to talk to you. And I feel like, oh, my goodness, I'm going to be sending people to Atlanta. <laughs> Yeah, about 60% of the people who come to see me are from out of state. So it's, yeah. it's, we're pretty, pretty used to that. Is yeah. mo- are most of your patients referrals? Yeah, I, well, I'm 100% referral. Okay. I don't do any marketing. Um, but yeah, the, the more severe, like next week, I've got somebody from Baltimore and another person from Idaho. And I'll spend one week with them doing four hours each per day for five days in a row. So we do 20 hours with the same person in the same week. Wow. It's called an, inten- it's called an intensive. Wow. And it is it lives up to his name (laughs) that is so awesome though because intensive intensives are so powerful huge yeah i mean if we think if we think about the brain like the computer that it is if you asked me to troubleshoot your it system and it was profoundly complicated and you gave me 30 minutes of once a week and you use the system between visits when i can get something done Mm. but you give me 20 hours in the same week to troubleshoot the same system i can fix a lot of stuff yeah. And the brain is way more complicated than an IT system, right? For sure. So, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Can you give some examples of maybe how you go about diagnosing and, quote, fixing yeah, so uh, interestingly enough, from a technicality standpoint, because we are being recorded, I, as a chiropractor, can't diagnose. Okay. Okay. No, <laughs> but, of course not. Uh, in, in that space, uh, even though I'm a primary care provider in the portal of entry, uh, there are different things I, in, in my will. But when I support people with existing diagnoses, one of the biggest things that you see is, is a, an amazing thing that you can look at, Seth, from treating the brain is just look at how the brain turns on and how it develops and how it actually grows in the first place. And just go, what about those basic core foundational elements? Could I examine, could I observe, and could I evaluate to go, man, is this within normal limits? Is it the best it could be based on who you wanna be? And you know, when I'm working with a kid, for instance, I had two seven-year-olds and a four-year-old yesterday. 
The seven-year-old is having profound digestive issues. They're trying to figure out if he's got Crohn's or ulcerative colitis or an inflammatory bowel, bowel disease and disorder. And no one at any point in the last seven years has done what's called a primitive exam reflex on him. Now, primitive exams are what actually allow kids to learn to move their arms, to touch their feet and their leg withdraws. You have sensitivity to touch and it helps you to learn how to roll over and sit up so you can eventually learn how to crawl and creep and walk and run. And once you learn how to do that, you learn how to talk and you learn how to think and you learn how to feel. Like movement actually turns the brain on. Mm-hmm. So if you have a if you have an inappropriate or a uh, an, what we call an aberrant or something that happens where your brain isn't absolutely fine tuned and you have some opportunities, uh, you can look at things like movement and sensations of touch and all of the basic sensory systems: taste, touch, sight, sound, smell, and the most important movement, right? And our relationship mm-hmm. with gravity. You can look at those, examine what they should be. And just essentially everything in the world in in making the brain work is Goldilocks. You're looking at something that should be online and asking, is it too much, too little, or just right? And if it's Mm -hmm. too little, can I increase that function? If it's too much, can I rein it in? And once it gets just right, man, does the whole system lock in like a fine-tuned instrument and fix itself? Yeah, most of the time it actually does. It's pretty cool. (laughs) Um, So most of my work is actually tied to what's called vestibular or balance training. Uh, visual motor, which is just how do our eyes have a conversation with our body. And man, a ton of it, a ton of it is tied to sensory processing. And an easy example for people going, well, can you say that in English? Um, (laughs) 100% of people that I've worked with that have high-grade anxiety are also ticklish. And the reason being, the Mm. system that develops anxiety, (laughs) the system that develops anxiety is built in the system that deals with sensitivity to touch. So if you are a hypersensitive person emotionally, or you are hypersensitive to what your thoughts are doing, it is very, very likely that you are hypersensitive to touch, right? Because your skin is the largest organ in your body, and your first thing that turned on to let me know, I think something's about to happen, was tied to your body map. So if I can show somebody how to decrease ticklishness, and no matter how ticklish somebody is, it normally takes about 60 seconds to rein it in. And all you do is you, t- you, you, give them a, uh, you give them an opportunity to engage their CEO and put a driver in the driver's seat. Like if somebody's ticklish on their left foot and I want to activate their right brain, I say, give me every color you can think of. Narrate the last book that you read and tell me every character you can remember. Paint me a picture, right? Tell mm. me somewhere you want to go. What's the last great meal that you had? They get into an emotional real estate and their right brain turns on and it naturally governs that ticklish response. Or if it's their right foot, we can tell their left brain, hey, can you count backwards from 100 by 7? It's really hard. Do it out loud so I can hear you say it. And as they're engaging their brain, I do what's called a positive corrective experience or a positive sensory encounter. And it's basically the same concept of EMDR, but you're doing it while you're engaging their brain and saying, I'm going to give you a safe sensory touch while you're processing something intentionally and your brain and that CEO will step in and automatically fix that sensitivity to touch. And it normally takes about 60 seconds. Wow. That is so cool. And it, and it's so simple. And yet we allow all of this stuff to remain so complicated and secretive in the medical community, which is, which is what I love hearing you, uh, just hearing you talk in, you know, human speak or, you know, person, person, really kids speak in some ways. I mean, it's high level conversation and 
the fact that you're really talking about the vestibular system and the proprioceptive system. But if we could just teach those two words to everybody, because they're they're complicated words and they sound terrifying, but they're really like, uh, how does your body move in space? Okay. Yeah. If you, what makes you not walk into the table? Oh, it's (laughs) so if we can just hone it in and make these big, big, scary things into little tiny kids speak things, then we've got kids healing themselves. We've got kids healing others. We've got Mm. lots of people healing lots of people, which is therapy for all or whatever you're the, we exactly everything is therapy yeah everyone needs therapy yeah well and everybody can do therapy that's the other yeah absolutely. if if we teach them little tricks like that then and and we need everybody to be able to do a little therapy for other yeah. people all the time because we don't have enough therapists and even if we did people don't have access they don't you know there's so many barriers oh. Yeah, I mean, it's a classic example of what we've seen in the last year, right? If you if people took mental and emotional health and neurological therapies and they treated it the same way they would if they went into the gym, they'd understand it's not actually that complicated, right? What happens when COVID hits, right? And you can't go to the gym. You know what? You pull up a YouTube video and somebody shows you how to do a body-based exercise or a body weight exercise. But in the right. clinical world, it's like, well, you know, I uh, I have 17 degrees that help you to understand the pontomedullary reticular formation does top down gating. It's like I don't understand what you're saying. Right? Why don't you t- Why don't you tell me that? Hey, if you're stuck at home and you can't make it into your brain doctor, do you know what you can do? If you want to exercise a system that helps you to know where you're in space, and that system's the one that turns on how, where am I in this relationship? Where am I in context of where I want to be in my life? My self-awareness is built on my awareness of self first, right? Right. So here's an idea. Why don't you close your eyes when you're putting your socks on? Or why don't you take a sip of your coffee with your eyes closed? Mm. Or why don't you brush your hair with your eyes closed? Do something super safe, but don't let that person who's the highest pay rate in your brain called vision rob you of all of the opportunity to go, oh, man, as soon as I close my eyes, everything feels so different. Yeah, because there's a different person who just got into the driver's seat to figure out what you do with your body when you don't Mm. have your vision. I don't need my five-year-old to understand the neurology of that. I just need him to go, hey, bud, can you try and put your socks on with your eyes closed? Or when you're brushing your teeth, why don't you try and use a different hand and do it with your eyes closed? And he goes, wow, that's really hard. And I go, yeah, let's let's just have fun. Let's practice it. Mm. And all of a sudden, his brain's getting more dynamic, and it doesn't have to be super calm. I love that. This is what school needs to be about. Like really just activating our brain in different ways and making it more dynamic and easy, just easy for people. Why do we have to make everybody feel intimidated by medicine and Okay, are my dogs are my dogs gonna mess it up? No, it's okay. We're talking okay, about okay. resilience. <laughs> oh. All I'm taking away from this conversation is, in order to heal the world, we just need to tickle each other. That's that's all I heard. So uh, here's the thing, man. It, it's also it, it's also it leads to a good point. People are like, why does it work so fast? And here's something I think you could probably spark and speak to pretty well as, as well, Kristen, based on your expertise and even your lived experience stuff. You don't have to be a clinician to know this. The reason it works so well is because I have consent. 
and there is permission. Mm. If there's consent and there's permission, here's the thing. Can you tickle yourself? No. Mm, yeah. Okay. If you can, and I have some patients who can, you know you got a really, really miss you got you got a miscommunication in your system that's pretty profound if you right. can tickle yourself. Huh. Something has right. gone very wrong. Yes. And everybody <laughs> tickle themselves reality because I run a trauma informed practice and there's very few practices that are tra- properly trauma informed. But my wife works in anti human trafficking and is a grant writer and we've worked in trauma informed spaces with all sorts of demographics for the last decade. Yes. But the reality is the reason you can't tickle yourself is because there's consent, there's permission, and it's a closed feedback loop. There's Mm -hmm. nothing different about the input. The input is the exact same thing. But as soon as I do it to you, you, your brain to a degree is going, I don't have all of the information. I don't feel as safe. Right. And here's the amazing thing. The same pathway for light touch, which is tickling, Mm -hmm. is the exact same pathway for pain. Okay, yeah. It's the exact pathway. Okay, spinothalamic is pain and light touch, right? So when you're ticklish, your brain is not processing it as light touch, it's processing it as pain until told otherwise, right? Right. This Mm -hmm. is why if you do it to yourself immediately and it's the exact same amount of input, it doesn't hurt. But watch what happens to somebody who hasn't given you consent and you start tickling them. They're laughing, it's weird, they're pulling back and watch how fast they, how quickly they fast track to what's called the limbic escape, right? They hulk out. Yeah. Limbic escapes are the part of the brain where the hulk shows up. Yeah. Does the hulk get, yeah. does the hulk start to panic? Does it start to get angry? Does it start to cry? Right? Because you can actually very quickly see if somebody's ticklish and you want to see what version of them will show up when they fa- they fatigue, you can fast track fatigue through touch, light touch, because it's also pain. But if I do wow. it with somebody, for instance, if I'm working, I, I have a high number of patients, my, the majority of my patients who are adults are female. It's just 85% of patients are female. In mm-hmm. my demographic, because I deal with complex cases and a lot of autoimmune and head injury, there also happens to be a lot of trauma and abuse, especially sexual abuse. I'm 6'2", 285. Okay, I'm a big man. And if I have a small female in my office who has a history of sexual trauma, do you think that I'm going to do anything to her body that doesn't have a profound amount of on-ramp for permission and consent? No way. Right? Yeah. No I'm way. touching a toe. I'm touching a toe, y'all, yeah. fully clothed. Yeah. But the thing is, is why I say to your point, Seth, you could actually heal the world. If you yeah. heal people, you, inter- you, you introduce yeah. a startle response, you integrate that startle response, and the body develops resilience because it's starting to understand the difference between discomfort and trauma. And it goes, that's hard, but it's not harmful. It's uncomfortable, but it's not going to kill me. But I'm in the driver's mm-hmm. seat. If I stay in the driver's seat and somebody navigates that with me and I can catch my breath and I can control my face, you know, the easiest way to manage if you're getting tickled is to breathe control your facial expression, and then give your mind something to do that lets you know that you're still in control. That's the counting of the colors. And then boom, all of a sudden the pain response gets mitigated. Because the craziest part of that entire thing to connect it to like relationships and life in general, you can't tickle yourself because you don't actually have pain receptors. There are no pain receptors in the body. Right. (laughs) Which, Which as a chronic pain patient, I gave a middle finger the first person who told me that it was one of my clinical <laughs> mentors i was like i don't believe that okay yeah. but what happens is your brain takes the information and goes how concerned should i be and watch any mm-hmm. kid under five years old have an inordinate response to losing a sock right yeah. because their brain hasn't figured out yet how upset should i be i have to hulk out first but if we start mm-hmm. to learn that the same thing that causes us to be ticklish when we can't tickle ourselves 
is the same thing that causes us to be really, really uncomfortable in pretty much every dynamic in our life because it's not a closed feedback loop and we don't feel like we're in the driver's seat anymore. So if we can take a deep breath, control our face, change our body posture or position and do anything that lets our body know that we're still in control and that that is not a bear that's going to actively eat me, you drop the threat level by 90% almost immediately and then you can actually stay in some lucid space to make an effective decision, right? That's why you can tickle yourself. It's also why if you get into an argument, you can realize quickly that that person's not trying to eat me. I'm just not a huge fan of their tone of voice. Yeah. Right. 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 Does that make sense? Yes. And I have a question because this is something that I talk to parents about a lot around littles and getting vaccines or shots or any kind of a painful experience that they might have at a medical office. And so when you, and, and it made me think, oh, I wonder if light touch would be a better way of handling this situation because we know the pain, or you and I know, and Seth knows that the pain isn't actually in the body, it's in the brain, it's reporting it, but, but you can't really convince a five-year-old necessarily of that. It does, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's irrelevant to them, but because pain and pleasure or, you know, that, that sweet I always say to parents, you know, like have a conversation and say, you know what, as soon as the needle hits your arm, if we interrupt that with like a sweet, you know, piece of candy, then it confuses the brain and you won't have time to even notice it. And so maybe, you know, maybe light touch though, see when you were talking about light touch, like maybe that is if you are light touching your child during a vaccine where and having them focus on that rather than you know the injection site which we just activate even if whether it's touching us or not i mean we feel the pain totally. <laughs> like we're like oh yeah. my gosh the needles you know across the room and we're like it hurts <laughs> but yeah but absolutely but when we teach littles when we teach littles and their parents that you know what it's all right here and you get to control it. So let's control it with either confusing the brain for just a brief moment, sweet pain pleasure, and yeah. or or touch and pain, which I like too, the light touch idea. But is that the same thing? Am I understanding what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. And there's there, you know, there's a couple of different factors uh, in there that are, are every day, every hour of every session of my office of helping kids understand that this is going to be hard and that's going to be helpful, but it's not going to be harmful, right? Like one of the phrases that I use with parents is if it's hard, it's helpful. If it's harmful, it's not. So one of the things, especially in today's generation, that's very, very hard is we've got kids that are very, very reward driven, but they're very, very risk averse. So their risk tolerance is very, very low. As human beings, risk tolerance is a completely different conversation now than it was two generations or three generations, four generations ago. Not because people are less capable of risk or resilience, but the idea of self-gratification is different because we're inundated. Right. Right. And the perception of reward is so much more constant. Mm -hmm. Not what you, Mm -hmm. not what are you engaging in that you can work through, but how do you avoid working through hard things? It's different nowadays than it used to be. And that's a higher philosophical question, but it affects us neurologically. Right. Mm -hmm. For instance, if you go in and use this exact example, 
if a kid is a little is having a, a true trauma-based response where they are unraveling, when fear goes up, cognition goes down. I don't understand what I'm thinking and I don't understand how I'm feeling. Every single adult who has been in a relationship for more than a week that went a little sideways knows that they can have this experience, okay? Got a little stressed, stopped thinking clearly. Got right. a little stressed, couldn't understand what exactly I was trying to communicate, right? If you've got a five-year-old who's only had five years on the planet to develop the hardware and he's still 25 years away from finishing building the building itself that he's going to staff and manage, you're, you're working with fewer resources, right? Yeah. So in that, knowing that when fear goes up, it's hard to think clearly and everything gets exacerbated. And now pain is is a hundredfold perceived, which means that it's a hundred it's a hundredfold experienced, right? Because this is one of the things for parents, just because it's perceived to be intense doesn't mean that you get to say, well, it's not intense. If it's perceived mm -hmm. to be intense, it is experienced as intense, right? right? Yes. We don't get to decide that. Right. Or else you should tell everybody who's scared at a scary movie, you know, it's just perceived, right? right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm scared because it feels real, okay? It doesn't have yeah. to be real to be relevant, right? right? It just yeah. has to be relevant. Yeah. But my point with what you're saying, uh, Kristen, is in this space, what you're talking about is called sensory extinction. It's actually something that we test for patients that if I touch one toe and I touch another toe on the other foot, you should be able to identify both toes at the same time. If you can't, something's wrong. Oh, but okay. you can use that exact same problem. Every single exam finding can be a therapy. Full stop. Every exam finding in functional neurology can be a therapy. So if, for instance, I want to work with a kid who's getting a shot, I can give him a sensory extinction. It's robbing Peter to pay Paul. So can I give him something or her something or them something, if we understand that there's all sorts of opportunities to address kids properly, if I can give them something to think about that uses a different sensory system, touches one of the sensory systems, you've got five secondary and one primary. Taste, touch, sight, sound, and smell are all secondary systems, meaning if you lose them, your brain will figure it out. But you know what mm. happens if you lose your relationship with gravity and movement? Your brain dies. Okay, mm. so the, the primary <laughs> sense is movement. Movement is king. So if I'm in the office with somebody and I go, man, that guy Jerome talked fast, said a lot of stuff, didn't understand all of it, but he said I could give my kids some sort of sense. Cool. Figure out a smell that they love and then get them to go, okay, can you smell that for me? Take a deep breath. And then, hey, right when you go for that shot, as soon as he goes coming, go in the countdown, I want you to take a deep breath of the smell and then I want you to blow out the candles on the birthday cake. <sighs> I want you to blow a raspberry, right? Whatever it looks like, those are tons of different sensory systems, yes. right? Or can you give can you give me a high five? I want you to give me 10 high fives, right? You're getting that shot in that right arm, give me 10 high fives, right? And all my friends who are chiropractors are dying on the inside right now because I'm having a conversation about vaccines. Because <laughs> <laughs> I got to build their resilience yeah. too. Okay, yeah. but my point is, in, in these sort of spaces, yeah. if you can give your brain something else to think about that keeps you in the driver's seat because here's a really easy rule of thumb it's an easy equation okay for parents or for clinicians or for anybody in life if compliance drops the number of words you use needs to drop if compliance is down words need to go down if compliance is up you can use as many words as you want right because here's the thing if i can't hear you i can't understand you so if a, if a child, a little, or any of us is panicking, you got to use bullet points. Eyes, mm. breathe, check in, hands, yes, no, 
pause, come back, right? I'm, I'm just using bullet points. As soon as I can get them to take a deep breath, I cannot have a conversation if there's no driver in the driver's seat. If a child is not willing to take a deep breath, an adult is not willing, a human is not willing to take a deep breath and control their face, right? Because watch, all of us are smiling and we're nodding, right? Yeah. Take a deep mm-hmm. breath and let your face go neutral. Watch. Now take a huge smile and immediately come back to neutral. That control takes a ton of executive function, right? Yeah. Hmm. If you can't control your face and you can't control your breath, one of the really easy tools that I use, Kristen, with, with family and with kids, is I just say mouth closed. If a kid is talking, screaming, <gasps> or their mouth is open like they're checked out, it's called hypomemia. They look like they got, you know, they got zoned in and they forgot to close their mouth and the tongue's hanging out and they're drooling on themselves because they're watching mm. Paw Patrol, right? <laughs> okay. um, or you're an adult and your Netflix has gone a little too long. It's two o'clock in the morning. And if anybody saw what you look like on TikTok at 1.30 yeah. a.m., you look the same way. So let's be, yeah. be realistic. My point is, if your mouth is open, there is nobody in the driver's seat. Mm. You're on autopilot. Mm. If, you have, if you have the capacity to close your mouth, breathe or control your face you automatically got a driver back in the driver's seat and you've got somebody who can hear you and hopefully understand you but if they can't close their mouth can't control their breathing and can't respond with one single one syllable word everything you say downstream is lost doesn't matter Mm. right so what you're talking about with these spaces is get them to check in somehow Get them to give you a high five, make eye contact, close their mouth, take a deep breath. Then you can start the conversation. But starting the conversation before you have connection and trying to ask them to understand before you've got their attention and trying to change the environment before you can change your attitude is a bit of cart before the horse. It's a bit unfair. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. To close out, I'd love to hear from from both of you. Yeah. Um, just a couple things that are one each of how to help a kid deal with the vaccine. Yeah, I think the, I'm going to tie this in with a study on suicide. Okay. There is only one single thing that has been shown to decrease the likelihood of suicidality in teenagers. And it's not a single thing tied to interventions for the teenager, which is sad. We need to fix that. But quickly, the number one thing that is statistically shown to improve the likelihood of supporting your teenager in that space is the education of the parents. So I would say if you want to support your kids through any conversation as intense as a vaccine, I would recommend reading a book called The Vaccine Book by Dr. Sears. It lets you know what you want to do if you go full schedule, reduced and delayed, or completely eliminate, and then understand that in the context of the current space. But there's nothing you can do to support your kids and be more educated yourself as a parent. And, and I am and I am exactly on board with a whole bunch of different words, but I say yes, the relationship and support of a loving parent, caregiver, somebody in the child's life who can scaffold their emotions because they've been here a much shorter time and have way less experience. But when we stand beside them and say, hey, you know, this is what I know and now I'm going to help you through this in a way that gives the child control then we're leading them into the ability to manage something that feels unmanageable at the beginning, but becomes manageable before it happens rather than try to manage it after it happens. So it's all about giving the child 
just like Jerome said, the, putting them in the driver's seat and allowing them to be in control of the situation. We do that by supporting them in the process ahead of time. And all of those things happen in a loving, safe, compassionate relationship. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I appreciate the opportunity to connect with you. If you're interested in booking a training, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me at my website, Dr. B Connections. There's a big button that says, book a training with Dr. B. It's that easy. If this show has been beneficial for you, please share it with your friends and family. Spreading the word about the show helps us grow our audience and helps continue to change the world together. Again, thanks so much for listening to Delusional Optimism. Now, go leave a life print. Thank you for listening to this special episode of Delusional Optimism brought to you by St. Agnes Medical Center and Every Neighborhood Partnership. We hope you're encouraged by Dr. B's message and find her tips helpful for managing life stressors and building a more resilient self. For more episodes in this special series, please visit St. Agnes Medical Center's website, at www.samc.com. This episode is produced and published by the editing team at TruthWork Media. TruthWork Media is a full-fledged podcasting and social media agency located in South Bend, Indiana with clients all around the world. For more information, visit them at truthworkmedia.com. These materials and all discussions of these materials are for educational purposes only and do not constitute medical or mental health advice. The presenter is not a licensed mental health or medical service provider. If you need medical or mental health care or advice, you should contact your doctor or therapist, or you can contact your insurance company for a referral. This show and all of its contents are copyright 2020 Dr. B. Leave a Life Print. Reproduction or use requires written consent of Dr. Kristen Beasley.